Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of Psalms and Psalm 51. Psalm 51 to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And of course the context here is David's great sin that he stole somebody else's wife and then made sure that Uriah the Hittite, the man whose wife he had stolen, was killed in battle. So in very real sense he committed not only adultery but murder. And it's important to emphasize that Bathsheba is never blamed, David is blamed. It was his action, his sin, his wickedness in using his position as king to take somebody else's wife and to do away with the man himself. So Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before you. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and broken a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Now we're looking in these midweek meetings at the moment at the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is the edition that we have in the the bookshop. This is a of course a 17th century document. And It deals with the basics of the Christian faith and a bit more. It deals with who God is, who Christ is, and then the plan of salvation. And we've come now to the the section that deals with the application of salvation. That is, human experience in terms of God's salvation. And having looked in the previous session a couple of weeks ago at saving faith, We've come this evening to the subject of repentance unto life and salvation. Repentance and faith are twins. When our Lord came preaching, we're told in Mark's Gospel, 
chapter 1, verse 15, he came declaring, repent and believe the gospel. The two go together. Now it's important, of course, to emphasize what repentance is. And repentance is very simply as a turning from sin unto God. The Old Testament, the Hebrew term generally used for it, means to turn. It's found, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14 verse 6. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. And turning in this sense, it's turning from sin to God. Turning away from what is wrong to God himself. The 689 confession here very much follows not the Westminster Confession but the Savoy Declaration. The Savoy Declaration is written in the 16, late 1650s and it is predominantly written by there's a group of men who are called the Independent Brethren and the Congregationalists who are at Westminster and they draft in John Owen to help them. It's called the Savoy Declaration because it's written at the, the Savoy which is an old palace. There's nothing left of it now apart from the, the Queen's Chapel at the Savoy. So if you go to London, you see the Savoy Hotel, and pretty much behind the Savoy Hotel there's a little old medieval chapel. And that's where the Savoy Declaration would have been drawn up. In that and the surrounding palace complex, nothing is left, I say, apart from that one chapel. And at this point, the 1689 and the Savoy are very different from the Westminster Confession. And they are so because of things that have been going on since the 1640s. So in about this ten-year period, there has been a lot of false teachers and a lot of controversy going on, which leads then to this very different chapter as compared to that in the Westminster. It's not that they're saying different things, they're saying the same thing and then some extra things as well. So it begins, uh, chapter 15, um, paragraph 1, such of the elect as are converted at riper years, having sometimes lived in the state of nature, and therein served divers lusts and pleasures, God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. And you may find that a very rather strange thing to find in a Baptist confession of faith. Because it starts out with talking about such of the elector as converted at riper years. That is to say, converted as... Uh, well, riper years is a rather vague term. I grew up in the Church of England. And the little church we went to... My mother still goes, the little church that uses the Book of Common Prayer of 1662. And in that book, because the Anglican liturgy, there is the order of baptism, public baptism for such as are of riper years. So you've got the infant, because of course, see the infant baptism, and then there's the second liturgy for baptism of such as are of riper years. So in the 1660s, people understood what riper years meant. Because if you had an Anglican vicar, he'd say, well, how old is the person to be baptised? Which liturgy are we going to use? 
And effectively, the idea is riper years means old enough that they're confident that this person is speaking for themselves and not for somebody else. Old enough to speak for themselves. But you will notice it says such of the electors are converted at riper years. Now, why is that? Well, but also, where does the language come from? Well, it's one of those cases where actually we know precisely who wrote this bit of the confession, because it's this gentleman, Thomas Goodwin the Puritan. And he wrote a little bit before this a book called The Work of the Holy Ghost in Our Salvation. And he puts it like this. Let's make sure I've got the right um, section here. Um, to yes. The great God, for holy and glorious ends, but more especially to give demonstration or to make appear his love and kindness, his mercy and grace, hath ordered it so that the generality of elect that lived to riper years should for some time remain in condition of sin and wrath, and then he renews them and turns them to himself. And he goes on to say, my meaning is not that God regenerates none but such as are grown up to riper years. I should be injurious to multitudes of his elect if I so asserted. But as infants are capable of all the essentials of regeneration, so de facto, that is as a matter of fact, it definitely regenerates multitudes of them while such. So the idea is some people are converted as infants. As young children, there are some people who they can never remember a time when they did not believe that Jesus Christ was their Lord and their Saviour. There is also a controversy at this time, and it comes up in an earlier section of the Confession, about what happens to infants dying in infancy. Now, that's not an enormous question to us today, but to very many people in those days... It was a, in fact, the majority of parents in those days, it was a very important and very painful question. John Owen himself, most, but all of his children predeceased him, most of them died in infancy. You look in some of these parish churches and you'll see these memorials, and of course war memorials are always to do with the, the richer people in the society because they could pay for it. And you will see memorials where you've got half a dozen, even a dozen children and every one of them died in infancy. And so it's a very important question. Is it only the people who live to be old enough to profess faith, to come to a repentance that we, we can understand? Are they the only people who are saved? And the Westminster Divines and the Savoy Congregationists and the Baptists all of them say, no, it's possible for people to be saved in infancy. And therefore, we dare not say of those who die in infancy, well, we have no hope for them. But we say, rather, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It is affirming the possibility of infant salvation and recognising that fact. There are some people who, rather than being converted later in life after living in the state of nature and having therein served diverse, that is, many lusts and pleasures, they grow up and they seem always to have been Christians. And they can never, none of, they're unable to say, well, there was a time when I didn't know God. 
But most, for most Christians, as Goodwin puts it, it's a case where there was a time when we lived in that state of nature. But God, in his call, he gives repentance unto life. Another point to mention in this connection is that in some churches, in some traditions, there is a, an emphasis on having a dramatic testimony. Now, we all like the man, the idea of bringing in the man who was a, a gangster in the past. I, I know a gentleman who was a Protestant paramilitary in Northern Ireland. Who were, and these people are converted out of this desperate lifestyle. And there's a temptation sometimes to think, well, the Christian life, you should have this dramatic testimony, but not always the case. So those who have, that's how God saved them. And those who don't, that's how God saved them. And God works differently with different people. But he gives them repentance unto life. But repentance is also something that all Christians experience. Whereas there is none that doth good and sinneth not, which is of course pretty much a straight up quote of Ecclesiastes 7.20. And the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation fall into great sins and provocations, God hath in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. And that again is a very important point that it's not just that we, we believe and repent at the beginning of the Christian life, but that whenever we fall we can believe and repent. We are called to return. The compilers of the confession were undoubtedly thinking of examples like King David, that psalm that we read. And you see David, he is the man after God's own heart. He is God's chosen king of Israel. God has brought him to the throne. He is at home in Jerusalem at the time when the armies go forth to war. For whatever reason, we're not told why he wasn't out with the army. We're just told he wasn't. And he looks out over the parapet and probably knowing the geography of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is on basically a hill or several hills. And the palace would have been at one of, was one of the high points of the city. So everything was overlooked by the palace. It stands up and it dominates everything because the temple hadn't been built yet. So the palace was the highest point. And he looks out of the palace roof and he sees probably in a garden nearby, a woman bathing. And instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't be looking that way and looking the other way, which is what you should do in such a circumstance, he allows his mind to dwell upon her. And he feels, I want her. And because he's the king, he can just say, go and tell her to come to me. Now, he shouldn't. But he does. He abuses his position. He goes from being the, the saviour king to the king who harms and hurts people and ends up, of course, committing murder. And what is to be done when he is, he is confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet? It tells him this parable of a wicked man who, a rich man who steals a poor man's pet lamb and serves it up to his guests. And David is angry. 
This man deserved to die. You are that man, Nathan says. And David confesses, I have sinned. And Nathan tells him, God has put away your sin. There is forgiveness. We can come back to him again and again. We need not be terrified and say, well, and this was a, a major problem in the early church, that there were, and it's something that's come up again and again in church history, these groups who say, you have one shot. At the beginning of the Christian life, you repent, you believe, you're saved, and if you fail, that's it. You find this notably in the early church with those who believed in baptismal regeneration. I've mentioned before the case of the Emperor Constantine I, or Constantine the Great as he's known, who was baptised literally on his deathbed because he wanted to make sure that uh, he didn't commit any sins after baptism. And if you're about to die, and he, he was about to die, then we're pretty sure that they're not going to be able to do anything terribly awful in those last few hours, maybe days of your life. And that's the problem with this sort of teaching, is it makes people, or at least to bizarre legalistic behaviours, unfortunately. But repentance is <clears throat> given, it's a wonderful thing, because we find in paragraph 3, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit, made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace for the purpose and endeavour, by supplies of the Spirit, to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. First of all, it is an evangelical grace. That is to say that repentance is not a legal work. It's not a work that we do. It is an evangelical grace. It is something that is the result of God's gospel work in his people. A gift of the Holy Spirit. So we find, for example, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. God's promise, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. It is the spirit of grace being poured on supplication being poured out that leads to that mourning over sin. That And the, the sin described there is the sin of crucifying the Lord of glory. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. They pierced and nailed him to the tree. And then Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, reading from verse 17. This is Peter's report to the apostles at Jerusalem concerning Cornelius and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? 
When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Repentance, then, is spoken of as something that is granted. It's not something we work up in ourselves. There is a, there's a movement today that has a certain um, traction, particularly in churches influenced by American fundamentalism, that denies that repentance is part of the of coming to Christ. And the reason they do this is because they think of repentance in terms of a legal work. And if repentance is a legal work, then saying that you must repent to be saved is saying that you have to add more legal works to Christ's work to be saved. But if it's an evangelical grace, which it is, then that conclusion doesn't follow because the conclusion is based on false premises. You may have heard, and some of you, of the what's called the um, Lordship Salvation Controversy involving John MacArthur. And this is all, that's what this is. It's all about people having misunderstood. So the, you've got these people who say, well, you don't have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord to be saved. Because they're thinking of it in terms of a legal work. Whereas the Bible presents it as a, an evangelical grace. That repentance is not something we work up inside ourselves. It is granted. And repentance then unto life, that is true Christian repentance, is different from a mere feeling sorry for sin. Many people feel regret for what they have done. He saw that profane person as he's spoken of, felt deep regret after he had signed away his birthright for a pot of stew. Not that he repented of it, but that he realised he'd been an idiot in giving it up. We find Judas was deeply upset that he had betrayed Jesus Christ to death, and yet he doesn't repent in the way that Peter does. But saving repentance is something that the Holy Spirit works within our heart. And it is intimately connected with faith in Christ. That is part of what makes it evangelical. And it includes a a determination to turn, because of course it's turning from sin to God, to turn away from a, a false path and to turn unto Christ Now, indeed, it is true that repentance is something that goes on all through our lives. Paragraph 4, as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins, particularly, first part of that is, repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives. Now, one of the fundamental documents of The Reformation is this, it's Martin Luther's 95 Theses. And Martin Luther, when he begins writing, puts pen to paper, he says, the very first thesis is, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. In other words, it's not just that Repentance is at the beginning of the Christian life. It goes on through our lives. It keeps on keeping on, if you will. 
It is an ongoing matter, continuing through the whole course of our lives, that we come back again and again. Because the reason for which is the body of sin, as it says, the, the, or the body of death. And of course that's a, an allusion to Paul's cry in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Coming back, this body of death, his body that is still... And it's not just talking about the physical body, he's talking about the, all the remaining sin and guilt and the, the wrong impulses that afflict us. And again and again we come back. And again and again we receive God's grace and forgiveness. That's a wonderful thing. We shall come eventually to that wonderful provision. But then it says, "Is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins, particularly. Now, this is not a legalistic statement. There are people who say, and of course this is what lies behind the Roman Catholic, or certainly historically the Roman Catholic idea of penance. If you ever go into a Roman Catholic church, you will see these, well, most, mostly there'll be a couple of doors, and one will have the name of a priest on it, and the other, well, this is the confessional there are various kinds, but the idea is that every faithful Roman Catholic is expected to, once a week, before, take, before going to the Mass, to confess their sins. And they're supposed to confess them in excruciating detail. The older confessors' manuals, the manuals of priests to use, and they would go into these are the questions you have to ask. The idea was that the priest would have to ask these incredibly probing questions. And in the 19th century, as part of the part of what's called the Oxford movement, the wide Anglo-Catholic movement, you've got some of these Anglicans who are attracted to Roman Catholicism publish some of these confessors' manuals. And there's one case that it's a book called um, "The Priest in Absolution" is actually held up in Parliament. And in some of these debates as to what's going to be done about these Romanizing people in the C of E. And questions are read out of it that are quite frankly horrific, asking about very, very specific types of sexual sin in excruciating detail. Have you ever done this? And it's why would you and of course it leads, this is Victorian England after all, there's utter horror at these things. But what lies behind is the idea that if any of these sins are not confessed, if someone's forgotten something, then that is going to, at the very least, extend their time in purgatory. But that's not what the confession is talking about. It's talking about rather being realistic in terms of sin. Because one of the temptations we have is of being unreal. There used to be, oh, many years ago, a column in the Daily Telegraph, in the, in, in the Telegraph anyway, I forget whether it was the Daily Telegraph or Sunday Telegraph, decades ago, called Peter Simple. And it, a lot of it was it, it, well, it, it's satire. And there was a character in there called Dr. Heinz Kiosk, who was a, his great catchphrase was, we are all guilty. So you would have story, for example, of a, a youth who was burned down a corner shop and he accuses this sinner and Dr. 
you know, this awful crime and Dr. Kios essentially excusing the lad by going, but we are all guilty. And of course, no, the lad is guilty, it's a specific. So we are all guilty. Can lead to this, this unrealism. That it's a, a phrase that's got nothing underneath it. Whereas when we think of specific sins, we confess them specifically to God so that we avoid this unrealism in the Christian life. Where we, we talk about our sins, we say forgive us our sins as we forgive them that sin against us. But we act and we think almost as though we don't have any sins. Because another part of the danger then is that we think of ourselves as being the righteous and other people as being the sinners. Because we can see their particular sins, we're not looking at ours. It's one of the things that leads to perfectionism as a, a false teaching being adopted by people is that they go, well, I don't think of any of my sins. It was um, Henry Ford, who was a, in many ways an awful man, if you look at so much about Henry Ford's life. But on one occasion he said to a newspaper, I would not be afraid of anyone looking at my heart. And reading this, an old Scottish minister said, well, this of course demonstrated that Henry Ford had never looked at his own heart at all. And that unreality comes from just as a general confession to God in prayer, rather than, Lord, I've done this, this, and this, and I am heartily ashamed that I have done this. Because the Apostle John tells us, First John chapter one, First John, First John, chapter one. From verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a particular confession of sin is not a, a legalistic thing unless you've, you can recall all your sins and confess them, then you're in trouble. Rather it's being real, being real with God, being honest to God, as it were. Because in the, the final paragraph, such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers under salvation, that although there is no sin so small but it deserves damnation. Yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. No sin so small that we can just say it doesn't matter, but no sin so great that it must sink us to hell. There is a, a rich provision, plenteous grace with thee is found, grace to cover all my sin. And therefore repentance is to be preached. And it's to be preached to Christians. Again, one of the unfortunate effects of a certain type of theology is that it views repentance as something just to be preached to unbelievers. That you say, and a friend of mine was in a church where the minister literally said the 
The gospel is for unbelievers, not believers. The call to repentance is for, and the offer of repentance is for Christians as well as non-Christians. Because Christians repent, Christians need to repent. And that's the wonderful point that Luther makes, that the whole of Christian life involves repentance. And that there is forgiveness with him. Not just for people who have never believed in Christ before, but for those who do believe in Christ. That, as Mr. Wesley puts it, it's, Mr. Wesley is a Christian, plenteous grace with thee is found, grace to cover all my sin. Because repentance is not just the beginning of the Christian life, it's something that's all through our Christian lives, and all through our lives. Christ is willing to receive the penitent. We think of that wonderful picture at the end of John's Gospel of our Lord and Peter. And Peter who had failed dismally. He had denied the Lord three times. And he is restored. Feed my sheep. He is restored. He is brought back. We think of the picture of the psalmist. When he speaks in Psalm Psalm 23 and verse 3 he restores my soul he restores my soul he brings us back Psalm 51 Psalm 130 these penitential psalms these psalms that speak of God's grace to Christians who have gone astray That he restores his people. He brings us back. Psalm 130 verse 3. If you Lord should mark iniquities. O Lord who could stand. But there is forgiveness with you. That you may be feared. And so it is that. We rejoice. At this proclamation of repentance. We rejoice that. There is an open door. Not just for unbelievers but for believers to come to Christ and to receive in that wondrous sense the forgiveness of sins. But he grants repentance and he says to all who have wandered, all who have gone astray, he says, return unto me. And we may, we can, we must return. Amen.